You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. I gave him the look, saying, more or less, we have now crossed the line into totally useless and arbitrary conversation, and it's time for me to go back to my office, where I have more important things to do than breathe undead life into the old lies. No one here will ever willingly leave. No one will ever give up the hiatus. The hiatus is the job. Hiatus. What a word. What a sound. No one else in journalism has it. Six weeks of vacation in the middle of the summer. Six weeks of sweet melancholy. Six weeks to pretend that you are something else, anything else, but a ghost who sits before a camera and smiles like some implied threat at 20 million people every Sunday. We're like some small European country, stranded on a single floor of a single building in Manhattan with an identity based upon a different sense of time. And we're doomed. I exaggerated when I said 20 million. Network news numbers don't go that high anymore. More like 15 million, or less, 10 million even. Network news is dying, but we're its audible last gasp, still able to pull a decent occasional rating. Five weeks ago, I sat under a dappled green trellis in a vineyard in the Camargue and ate Riette de Wa on crusts of warm bread. Now I was back in the underworld. We got to my office, and I slid into my chair, but Bob stood at the door, one hand in his pocket, another jabbing at me with a banana, which I knew would never be consumed. Should I be worried is what I'm asking. John Marks is the author of The Wall, named a notable book of 1998 by the New York Times, and War Torn, named one of the best books of 2003 by Publishers Weekly. He's a former producer for 60 Minutes, and his new book is Fangland. Welcome to the program, John. Thanks, Rick. Glad to be here. John, we might be tempted to think, knowing as we do that this is a book about vampires in Romania, that Fangland is someplace in Eastern Europe. But it's not, is it? It is actually not a reference to a place in Eastern Europe. It is a reference actually to an office, a place where people work every day. It is a nickname for a place where the people work, given to it by one of its employees, a show called The Hour, which is, in my novel, the best-known news broadcast in television history that's been on the air for three decades and is a place that has done amazing things in journalism, has broken all kinds of ground, has exposed all kinds of fraud, and has uh, also told heartwarming stories about survival. And yet, at the same time, is a place that is very hard on its employees, to say the least. It is a place... Uh, so dreadful in the imagination to some employees that one of them has named it Fangland. Let's talk a little bit about this book. It's got a pretty fascinating setup. Your main character is Evangeline Harker. She gets an unusual assignment. She is an associate producer for The Hour, which means it is her job to go out into the world and find stories and bring them back for the show to do. She vets those stories. And she has been assigned the task of finding an underworld figure, a mobster, an Eastern European mobster who is a legend to the uh, law enforcement community in the United States. Nobody has ever seen him face to face. Her assignment is to go find this man and figure out whether or not he will be good on television and whether or not he's everything he's cracked up to be. What ensues is a novel that's very reminiscent of another novel, very famous novel, named Dracula by Bram Stoker. Uh, one of the things about Dracula that I always found interesting, I always thought that it seemed that in its construction it seemed really modern to me, almost postmodern. A- and you've followed some of that template, haven't you? I have. I think there's some truth to that. I think Dracula's real 
its importance culturally as as a novel, I, I think, became more clear as the last century progressed. I think, in some ways, its sort of gruesome and supernatural subject matter hid the fact that it was a book about uh, an entire world and about differing points of view, a sort of a fractured opinion through documents like letters and diaries about what the world actually is about, what is in it and what's not. Dracula by Stoker is at the is sort of in the at the heyday of the Victorian era. And so it's looking at questions of science, of nationality, of rationality, of where the border between civilization and chaos is. And in all those respects, that novel is is very much a template for our own time. I mean, I think a lot of the things the Victorians wrestled with, and particularly the Victorian English, who felt part of the greatest civilization in the world, absolutely safe within their own identity, very secure, and yet there were these things gnawing at them, these, these sort of these night terrors that suggested maybe all was not as 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 healthy as it seemed. Well, to me, that's there, there's a real analogy to Americans in the early part of the 21st century. One of the things that you begin this book with, which is a really interesting assertion, is is that the 9/11 Commission report you describe it as being like a a Tolstoy novel. Could you talk about that? That's a great observation. Well, I mean, I think the thing to me, it just struck me in in reading through that report that. There's so much material there. It is such a grand saga. We know so much. For all that we don't know, there's an enormous amount that we do know. And to me, reading it, the thing was constructed like a story. And it was very easy to read through it and start with sort of the beginning. You know, it has a novelistic beginning, which is the day of, just before it happens. You know, it was sort of a perfect, wonderful New York day. And then the nightmare occurred. And so for me, as I went through, there are characters, there are people who know, who knew in advance what was going on or suspected it. There are our terrorists. We learned to know more about them. And so it struck me that one of the things about it that's interesting is that for all the information it seemed to supply, the big questions for me were still missing. Why would anybody do this? What should our actual response be? I mean, for all the detail and all the sense of knowing, the unknowing was even greater. And I think that was sort of, for me, a, a real starting point for this this book. One of the things that's interesting to me about this book, and I really like that you brought up, up what we don't know, is this this concept of, of the lacuna within this book, that the, those gaps in our knowledge uh, of sequences of events. Tell us a little bit about how that plays into your book. I knew that with uh, with Dracula, let's go back to the Stoker novel for a second. One of the beauties of that novel is that we only see so much at any given moment. So in the beginning of the novel, when the protagonist, who's named Jonathan Harker, goes to Romania, he's going to do a real estate deal. And as it starts out, the journal entries are very perfunctory and straightforward. He's kind of a normal, he's an average Victorian businessman out to do an average Victorian deal. And progressively, he, as he goes along, he sees things that are more and more startling and more and more surprising that he himself can hardly process. And we get to a certain point where we know something monstrous is happening, but we haven't really guessed the whole story yet. And because these come in the form of documents, every bit of information that we get fills in a bit more. But you never get a clear sense that you have this lordly, overarching narrator who is kind of like God, who says, here is what is happening. All you have is the testament of people and documents. And so for me, that's first of all, that's journalism, right? That's the way we... We report to people in journalism. Most of us do not tell our own stories. We tell the stories of others. And so our what we bring to the public is a document. 
if you're talking about something that actually is occurring in the rational world that everybody kind of can buy and accept as having happened, there are certain things you don't need to say. But if you're trying to report or document something that is extravagantly unreal, then what happens? Then where does your evidence break down? Then where does your testimony break down? How much do you believe? How much do you want to believe? Maybe you don't want to believe what you're hearing. And maybe the easier answer is to simply say, well, logically, I can't accept that, so I'm not going to. After all, it's only this one person who's claiming this happened. So to me, the lacuna, what we, what we don't see is the gaps that allow us to maybe breathe a little easier. And at the same time, those are also the places where the worst sorts of nightmare come up. I mean, maybe what we're describing is not as terrible as the truth. You spent some time in 60 Minutes as a producer. I wonder if you talk a little bit about how you got your start in the show and how that reflects through the, some of the descriptions we see of the people who work for the hour. Sure. Uh, I got my start there. I was a print reporter for all of my career. I started out in print. I was a devoted print reporter. I would even go as far as to say I was a print snob. And friends of mine uh, who are in the television end, broadcast news, would say to me every now and then, well, why don't you, have you ever thought about maybe trying it out? There's a lot of exposure there. There's a, you know, a greater viewership and network. And as it happened one day, uh, there was an opening at 60 Minutes for an associate producer on Ed Bradley's team. And I went and I applied for the job. And I got it. And the associate producer job was a step down for me. It was I was a, uh, uh, a reporter with a byline and had been a senior reporter at U.S. News and World Report for several years. So the associate producer loses the name. You basically everything you do is uh, you do basically for the greater good of the broadcast. Uh, you're you're invisible. But I thought, well, you know what? This could be an adventure. It could be an amazing and very pure way to do journalism. I'm not going to get paid that much, and I'm not going to have my name out there. So I'm going to be doing it to bring these great stories to a great broadcast. And uh, I did that for about a year and a half and slowly worked my way up to being a producer. Now, the thing about it, though, that I will tell you is that because I'd never worked in television at all before, when I first stepped on that floor, two things hit me at once. One was the sort of weirdness of television world. I mean, when you walk down a darkened hall full of editors in their bays and those and there's no light there. There were no windows at that point in the editing bays. And all you see to your right and left are the images flashing on screens, a sort of blue light, this sort of sorcery. There's a sort of sorcery to that. And when you hear editors sort of taking the voice, the human voice, and breaking it up and shattering it and making all these weird sounds and blips and it's already supernatural. I mean, right from that moment, I had this feeling of there's this is a world I never imagined. And the second thing is that when you walk on that floor and you grew up watching 60 Minutes, the first time you see Mike Wallace, it's like you're seeing a ghost. There's, again, there's a supernatural element to it. I mean, I saw him when I was eight, nine years old on my parents' floor. I would watch him at my grandparents' house. They're both gone now, long since passed away, but they're uh, the first time I heard Mike Wallace's voice, I didn't see him. He was behind me, and he was asking for something very banal, like, you know, can I have a phone number for this or that? And it was that voice, and it was unreality. That's the only way I know to describe it. One thing about this book that I think continues forth from some of your other books are the Eastern European settings, this featured in, yeah. in The Wall and in More Torn. And I wondered if you talk about this. Have you spent time in Eastern Europe? I have. I spent a lot of time there. When I was a, I was a journalist for U.S. News and World Report for several years, and when I started with them, I started in Berlin. I moved to Berlin in 1990, about uh, seven or eight months after the wall fell, 
And I lived there for five years through 1995. And so I covered the sort of the outlying areas of the Balkans wars. I covered the transformation of Eastern Europe from a uh, a group of states that were uh, communist dictatorships to free market capitalist states with all the messiness that that implies. And I spent a lot of time traveling in this world that was just coming open to the Western uh, European and American eye. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine now, but back in 1990, it was, an, it was a hidden world. It was as if, for me, it had been underwater. There were places that I I hadn't been able to go. I was a student in, in uh, West Germany back in the 80s, and the Iron Curtain was there. And places you simply couldn't go. Well, all of a sudden, I'm going to Prague. I'm in, I'm in Bucharest. I'm in Budapest, these sort of legendary places, and there's still so much dust on them. And the sense of the uneasy past coming alive was all around you. It was as if you could look back to the 30s and the 40s. And at the same time that I'm doing this, all these archives are being opened up, and a whole different history of World War II and all those horrible stories about the war in that part of the world became available. And in addition to that, then in the Balkans, you began to feel that, oh, we always thought the Cold War was sort of the main event. But in fact, push the pull the veil aside and you see people thinking about what happened 600 years ago. And that history suddenly came alive in that same time period in a way that was shocking and amazing to me. One thing about the vampire novel, and this novel works well within that, is they work well as travel logs. That's really true. I mean, I think Jonathan Harker in the opening of Bram Stoker's Dracula, he writes about uh, actually the the chicken paprikash in Budapest and it was how how it was uh, it was a nice dish or something. It's true the Dracula novel is an occasion to write about the mysteriousness of travel. You start out in a safe place that you know. We know that about you. We know that Evangeline Harker, my character, she's coming from New York City, and she's a New York City woman, and she has all of that baggage, and she kind of knows who she is. And so when she goes out in the world, she has a certain way of judging it. And so, and the vampire novel is great for this because one senses if we're going to Transylvania and we're going to mis- meet a mysterious character, you're already in the room with the vampire mythology. You may not be there yet face to face with the vampire, but if you're in that territory, there's some sense of something liable to happen. But our character doesn't know that. But what she's seeing before she even gets to that point is this world rise up that is in some ways as mysterious and strange to her as the vampire. Uh, The idea of a country that is newly becoming capitalist for a woman who grew up in the United States and lives in New York City is itself sort of a shocking revelation. What is this? You mean they're just getting Diet Coke right now? And, and, and every step of the way, you see, also, as you move towards the vampire in a, in, a, in a vampire novel, particularly the Stoker variety, you're moving away from everything familiar, and it's a step-by-step process. So you leave behind Bucharest, and you're leaving behind the big city. The next thing you know, you're in the foothills of the Transylvanian Alps, and there's a coffin horse on a horse-drawn carriage coming towards you. That's yet one more step away from the world that you know into a world where life and death and, and the border between the supernatural and the natural suddenly become a little bit blurry, even before we get to the vampire. One thing about this book that I really, really liked was that part of that familiar world that she brings with her is all our cultural knowledge of vampires. The the look, seeing them in the mirror, the garlic, the steak, the whole shebang, everybody knows that is all part of our, our cultural heritage at this right. point. But what you successfully do is take us towards a vampire or something that we don't know. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, that's to me, this was the challenge. When I first went to Romania and Transylvania, 
uh, it was as if I'd walked into the novel. And all of a sudden, I felt as if, wow, what Stoker was writing about, and not just what Stoker was writing about, but all these stories about the Transylvanian Alps and Dracula, there's some reality here. But the mythical the mythical literature that we have about the imaginary world is so immense. There's so much of it that to go back in and actually write a, a, a vampire story now in that part of the world, well, what would be the reason for doing that? Why would you go back to this old terrain and revisit it again? I mean, Stoker's book is there. And for me, it was always clear that the vampire mythology that I had grown up with from Stoker through Hammer horror films, even through a TV soap opera like Dark Shadows had come from this world. It had actually come in a from in a folkloric sense, not exactly from Romania, but further south in Serbia. I actually met a woman there who claimed that she had relatives who were vampires and that the vampire mythology that Stoker borrowed was Serbian, in fact. And you got to remember, I'm hearing this while the Bosnian War is raging right across the border with all kinds of horrible uh, uh, barbaric acts of murder, uh, many of them sort of calling to mind the violence in, in, in the Stoker novel, but directly connecting the very stylized and very um, melodramatic violence of the Dracula story to actual butchery and murder and atrocity in the Balkans. And when you understand that uh, Stoker's model for the vampire, uh, Vlad the Impaler, was a crusader knight against the Turkish hordes and is in a direct line uh, in terms of his iconography with the uh, Serbian Orthodox paramilitaries who were fighting in Bosnia, all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, the vampire mythology can be updated in ways that are absolutely real and true to the mythology, or at least resonate with it, but also tell us something new about the world we live in right now. And so first thing that has to go for me, the cape and fangs. I mean, for me, I needed a vampire who would somehow reflect the world that I was discovering in the early 90s, this hidden world of the deep past and the past of the 20th century, the murder, the atrocity, the barbarity of the race being dug up out of the ground. What does a vampire look like who reflects that as opposed to, say, the eroticism of Stoker's Dracula? That vampire would be very different. And so that, that was for my starting point for giving us a vampire that we don't know. One thing also I found interesting in this book, many vampire novels deal, spend quite a bit of time and are actually rise up out of a well of Christian faith. And it's really central to the part of, of the, the story. Right. And that's not the case here. We do have a devout Christian who Evangeline meets, Clemmy, and she's armed, Clemmy is armed with, as Christians sometimes are, the final truth. Right. It, but that's completely irrelevant to to the what uh, Evangeline is going to encounter. That is true. I mean, one of the things that intrigued me was, okay, so if you're going to reshape this myth, in the stories that I grew up with, the cross is always powerful. It may not actually solve the problem every time. There are vampire movies where Dracula will take the cross in his hand and the cross bursts into fire, and you realize it's probably because the faith of the person holding the cross isn't strong enough. That's one of the scenarios. But for me, in thinking about the history of the region and the ground out of which this mythology, the mythology that I had grown up with, the vampire that I knew, where it had come from, that ground, the cross and the piety was tied as much to the disaster and the murder and the horror. So if my vampire is a vampire that feeds off disaster and feeds off 
the horror of the past, then the cross will hold no power over him. He actually collects artifacts and relics from destroyed churches, and the cross for him is a source of comfort because the cross has been part of this horrible story. And also, it has to say, it's part of this is my vampire is a, is a creature, I think, who's going a little bit insane with the intensity of the knowledge of the murderous, of, our, of this murderous species. But the cross belongs to that and is not in opposition to it. My uh, character finds her strength in a very different place. Yes, she does, doesn't she? Tell us a little. <laughs> this is one of the interesting parts of this book. And, and that this brings up a, something that I really liked about this book is this, your sense of humor. Your novel has a really different, a very subtle, but very powerful sense of humor. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you, why you chose to use the vampire to help you satirize American media culture. Well, you know, it's a good question. I think, first of all, I would have to say that some of it was just pure. Uh, it was the fact that someone like me, who grew up reading the vampire story, who is the kind of person who at some point might pick up Dracula again and read it, got a job in this place. And as I read the novel, and I read it sort of casually, um, I realized that there were many ways in which that story actually tracked with my own sense of where I worked, and that if you changed the central character from a real estate agent in Victoria in England to a journalist, a news TV news journalist at the end of the 20th century uh, in the United States, it actually made an enormous amount of sense. And part of my sense of humor about this came from the fact of realizing that it actually it's it's this, it, it it's perfect. It seemed to all fall into place. And I, that made me think, well, where do I work? What is this place I'm working? And um, there was a certain heightened ridiculousness to the work life on that floor, to the way we worked, in that there was always a sense of melodrama about our own, uh, our own job. You know, you're always it was always intense. It was rare that you ever had a moment where you could just sort of say, you know, it's no big deal. We're just making a story. No, it, it, your sense at sixty minutes was always one of enormous pressure. The stakes are huge. You could be sued. You could get fired immediately if you put your foot wrong. If you aired. One thing that was ridiculous or made the show look bad, you could be gone. And people cultivated that. They sort of you get addicted to that atmosphere of ridiculous um, self-involvement. And celebrity is also involved. So you have people who have been household names for years, and that brings another element to it. So for me, I, I think I realized at some point the Dracula story was a way into this world that could satirize it, but would not make the mistake of trying to. In other words, satirizing a world that is already satirizing itself every single day is a very difficult prospect. So how do you do that? How do you go into a world and try to write about it and get the ridiculousness of it but without making the book itself ridiculous? And lo and behold, I was reading Stoker's Dracula and I thought, you know, this is a way to tell a story about the place where I work. It It is. It actually has so many of the themes. Um, and uh, for me... Also, truthfully, the idea of my main heroine discovering her power over the vampire, to me that tracked completely with the idea of young women going to work in a place that is so much about male testosterone and constantly having to use everything in their, at their disposal to defend themselves, to get their stories, to make their way. And so um, all I can say is that Dracula simply gave me a way of um, both looking at the horror of the way we work in America, but also at uh, the um, the melodrama and the ridiculousness of it. 
you have a lot of fun with the, some showbiz satire and, and in this book and I wonder if you talk a little bit about some of the some of the real life incidents maybe that you experienced at 60 minutes that that informed some of these these ideas there's a great uh line that one of your correspondents says that wild hope always dies a horrible death <laughs> well yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, in, at 60 Minutes, you were always chasing the big story. You were always chasing some the idea that you could land an enormous uh, story or, or get a person who had never talked to the media before. Or there was always going to be something. You know, the, the adrenaline rush was always very great. So the minute you sat down and you came upon a story, there was always this sense of, oh, my gosh, does anybody else know about this? i got to jump on this right away. And the hook, the hurdles that you had to get over to actually go from thinking of an idea in a shop, a highly competitive shop, with 100 other people all looking for stories too, all perfectly willing to cut your throat if need be to get their story, to jump in ahead of you to pull a favor, whatever. And so there, was always, there were always these moments when you were thinking, oh, my gosh, could this really be happening? Am I going to get this? Am I, am I going to not only have the idea book the interview, get my correspondent to agree to do it, actually get the camera's crews there and have that interview turn out to be as great as I want it to be, the chances of that happening were astronomically low. Every single step of the way, you get tripped up. So by the end, that wild hope has almost always come down to, ah, John, it wasn't what I hoped it would be, you know, dashed. So that was for sure behind that that line. Tell us a little bit about some one of the things that's fun with uh, the vampire novel is is foreshadowing. You you and you have a lot of fun with this, and, and it's it also enables you to get a lot of creepiness in because once we know we're in a vampire novel, even the smallest incident gains a portent. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, I'll tell you something now. One thing that happened in the course of writing this book, which is real and true, which is embedded all the way through it, is that I went to shoot a 60 Minutes piece with Morley Safer about the Dracula tourism industry in Romania. Okay, I had already begun to think about writing this book. But we went over there because there was a Dracula theme park that was going to be built, and we thought it would be a fun story to take Morley to Transylvania and have him talk to all the crazy characters who were involved in the tourism business over there and talk to the Romanian government, to a representative of the government, about what it meant in terms of demeaning the country's image or degrading Romania abroad for the sake of tourism, tourism dollars. Well, we went... We went to Bucharest first, and then we went up into Transylvania, and we shot absolutely stunning footage in Transylvania. We got wonderful interviews. We had a moment where Morley was in a graveyard at dusk with dogs howling and lightning flickering and the village priest running out in the graveyard to tell us to get out, and it was all on camera. And we went back to Bucharest, and we headed our separate ways. And in Paris, my film, my lead cameraman put that tape on an airplane, Air France, Air Freight, uh, which we do all the time, and it disappeared. It absolutely vanished in the thin air. And I was told this hasn't happened in 36 years of the broadcast, and I was told, don't worry, it'll show up, it always does, it's probably in Bangladesh or Senegal. It never, ever showed up. When I called the ancient Dracula scholar Radu Florescu, who we'd interviewed in his home in Romania, to tell him that the piece he would not be in the piece because the tape had disappeared. He didn't miss a beat. He said, Dracula's curse. <laughs> and that's a true story. And the reason I tell that is because that, beca that became a part of the novel. That, that experience was so bizarre and so um, uh, 
so much like the Dracula story in some way, a completely inexplicable event occurring, that I then started to build it in slowly from the beginning. One thing that, that hangs over this novel is 9-11. So I have to ask, were, were you in New York on 9-11? Yes, I was. Where were you working at CBS? I was not. Uh, yeah, I was at CBS. The CBS offices were not downtown, um, but I was there. I was at CBS, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that experience and, and how that informs this book. Uh, I was on the subway when it happened. I heard people talking on the subway about a plane hitting the World Trade Center, thinking it was a small Cessna. Uh, then somebody else entered the train a little bit further down and said, no, it's two planes. And then everybody became, became aware that something terrible was happening. When I actually showed up at work, by that time, I knew what had happened. I'd seen the smoke from, uh, from, a, from a block way uptown. And inside the news, the offices of 60 Minutes on the ninth floor, uh, there was a sense that I don't think was very different than what everybody else was feeling. It was uh, a complete failure to grasp the enormity of what we were looking at. Also, before the towers actually fell, it was one thing. After they fell, it was another, obviously. And... I can remember that my correspondent was out of town. He was in London, and he couldn't get back. Morley was gone. And so we couldn't work on 9-11 stories, our team. So we went back to working on stories that had nothing to do with the 9-11 world, which was the strangest experience because in that, in that, in that, in that job, you go into the thing that you're doing absolutely, completely focused on it with total intensity so you make sure you don't make any mistakes. To do that, to go do a story about uh, a doctor who was opposed to treatment of schizophrenics uh, and was uh, while literally the city was burning, that, was, uh, that moment has stayed with me because it, it brought, it, for me, it heightened my sense of the futility of trying to get this event down as a journalist. What do you say about it? What do you do with it? How much of you, if you live in New York and you're there on the day, and if people in your neighborhood have died in those buildings, and if at night the dust that rains down on your house is the dust of cremated victims, how much can you bring to that? That's How can you talk about objectivity? What can you begin to do with this material. And for me as a, as a journalist, and for me, a pitifully small amount. I, was, I worked on a couple of stories related to 9-11, but in the end, I found even reading what was written about 9-11 inadequate to my uh, experience of that day. And so I had always thought, well, how do I write about this? How do I get this out? How do I connect it to the rest of my world? Because that day is separate from every other day in my life. It's absolutely separate. Um, and when I started thinking about the Dracula story after 9-11, and I had been thinking for years, ever, ever since I'd gone to Transylvania and ever since I'd been in the Balkans, about a way to tell the story of the Dracula story in a modern setting using, using the Eastern Europe that I knew. After 9-11, that's when this, I think, book finally came together because it was a way for me to bring my own sense of the horror of what had been visited on the country and the city and sort of on, on my psyche into a format where I could actually write about it and say something about it that made sense to me. And I could connect it with everything else. Until I wrote this book, I don't think I could connect it to anything else. This book was the way that I connected it to some larger sense of life, the world, the past, my job, everything. One thing that this book does amazingly well 
is to create a sen- an apocalyptic sense, a, a sense of impending apocalypse, uh, of the dead crowding around. And you quote a figure in here, 187 million? Yeah, 20th century. It killed, people killed... By other people. Yes. By design. I think Stalin killed tens of millions by a planned famine. The Second World War took out tens of millions. You know, even at the end of the century in Rwanda, I think a million died in Rwanda in the 90s. For me, it's always been a question, well, how do you really process that? What do you do with that? And, and if that's really just the tip of the iceberg, I mean, the numbers may be greater in the 20th century, but if we really do figure that the human race was capable of that, and let's just say that it was about technology, that technology finally allowed the human race to kill as many people as it possibly could, but that the impulse was always there. And that's sort of what I think what I've had to come to terms with is that the impulse was always there. If you really start thinking about all that death, but you try to say to yourself, and it's, it's got to go beyond the numbers because I have to understand that every single number in that 187 million, not even to speak of the whole history of the species, is a reality. It's a real person with their own story of the horror of that death. If you were really to start trying to grasp that, what would it do to you? How would you handle it? Can you think that thought? Okay, so for me, part of this book is how do we think that thought that every single one of that number is real. It really happened. There was a brain that experienced it. There was flesh that experienced it. There were there was a dream life that was haunted by it, uh, by the people who were left behind. And that's and every single one of those is say its own little novel. So what would that do to a person? Well only a supernatural figure to me can actually encompass that information. And that's my vampire. Is the creature who can actually absorb the shock of knowing that it's all real. It all really happened. And that is sort of, and, and, then, and then my apocalypse, I suppose for me, the question of apocalypse is, well, would an apocalypse be all of us actually knowing it was real? And that what would that do to us? What, wouldn't that absolutely really finally destroy all of us? Really the knowledge of who we have been? And if not, what would save us? No, it's a long answer to your question, but for me, that 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 that's the apocalypse is is uh, is knowing what we've been and how inevitable what we've been uh, is for our future. That that's the knowledge that I I'm fighting against and trying to grapple with in this book. It, it really goes with what you said about your experience of nine eleven that you it was you couldn't grasp what had happened, and, and it's still really hard for anybody to grasp the horror of that that single event. And that's exactly what you take in writ large, is writ large in, in your novel. And one thing that interests me is this perception of the dead. They really are the great majority, aren't they? Yes, they are. They are <laughs> the great, in my book, not the silent majority. <laughs> yes, I mean, this is the thing. This is the the the... The thing about the dead is that you can drive past them, walk past them like you drive or walk past a cemetery, and they will not say much to you. You may get a chill. I, my son has been has learned from a school friend to always hold your breath, breath when you drive past a cemetery. But those, presumably, are those, most of whom, who died well, who died in their sleep, who died of illness with their families around them, who, who at least had the dignity of being buried by people they loved. But it's that other great group who are always there, and I think sort of inescapable. I mean, the, 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 the awful truth for all of us, I think, is that we don't escape it. They aren't finally silent. They are the great majority. They are not silent. They talk to us. They will find a way to talk to us one way or the other. They will come at us 
either because somebody will unearth the mass grave that everyone had forgotten about, because some family member, some descendant of a horribly wronged uh, family, a horribly wronged ancestor will step forward and say, I've had enough. I can't remain silent about it anymore. They are there and they are with us till the race is gone. And I think for me, though, for me, particularly as an American, I feel like we have lit, we have created a world in which we're always looking forward and we are always building our dream palaces and we are always trying to extend our sense of the future and of our and of all these good and healthy things that we all want. And I'm not suggesting that we become a cult of death worshipers at all. I, I, and sort of always look face first, you know, always have our eyes fixed on on the horrors of the past. But I think the problem is that we can't not look at it. We can't get away from it. And it's in the, it, to me, that's the tricky balance here. And that for me is the tension in this book. How do we remember the dead? How do we do that? How do we do it adequately? And particularly the murdered, uh, uh, desecrated dead. We owe them something, surely. We owe them memory. But what if then memory becomes... Um, Memory becomes all we can see. What if death and destruction, murder and slaughter become the sum total of what we're able to see? I, and I think there is a temptation towards that. And so I think maybe one of the things we've all come to believe is that memory is this, as long as we remember, it's all good. But what if there's a point where memory becomes a kind of fetish and becomes a kind of death fetish? What do you do with that? That is something that I, I haven't figured out, but I think is part of this. One thing that, that really interests me in this book uh, are the layers of memory and time and perception. I, at one point, she's Evangeline is talking to, to Torgu, and she's saying, well, you know, this show has been on for three decades, and you're thinking, well, this guy has probably been around for millennia. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I know that it's possible to talk about the time, the good old days when Seinfeld was still on the air or, you know, a time three seasons ago, uh, you know, a time before American Idol. Can we imagine that period, that lost paradise? But when you actually start talking about, say, geological time, let's just talk about the ultimate big, huge number. There already, when you realize that there are rocks around us that are billions of years old, that's very hard to deal with the process. How do you make sense of that. Well, in some ways, we don't have to. I mean, the rocks are silent. We, we can't really know much about them. Uh, we can only sort of live amongst them. But with our own past, you see, we actually can begin to get a sense for how far back it goes and what our legacy is. I mean, it's sort of in us. It comes out in us. I mean, our violence is one of those things that I think, you know, uh, I'm assuming that an evolutionary biologist would say that, you know, the extent of our violence is probably not necessary from an evolutionary standpoint. Violence, yes, but the extent of it, but maybe it's because there's some part of our being that still so far back has learned to just murder as a, as a response to panic and fear. And to me, so to me, the, 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 the hugeness of the past, I mean, if, if, we, if we narrow our little world to, say, our parents' lifetimes or our own lifetimes or say the world was young in 1972 when I was eight years old and that's good enough for me. I don't need to go any further back than that. Um, that there's a sort of safety in that, I think, from our perspective. But sooner or later, that bigger, darker, deeper, heavier past, it comes for you. I mean, that's the lesson of the Balkans. We, most people didn't know where those countries were. They didn't know anything about them. They shouldn't affect us. Why should we care? Those people over there said 600 years my people were under the yoke of the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, as if, 
as if that mattered today. Well, guess what? It did. The past came alive like, uh, you know, that scene in the Ten Commandments where Moses, or it's a scene in the movie for me, but, you know, Moses throws the stick down and it comes alive as a snake. Well, that's the past. It looks like a, a wooden staff in your hand. Throw it on the ground and it's a snake. One thing that really interests me is your perception of the vampire. There's just a scene in the book that really sticks in my mind. It's not, you don't drink blood with vampires. Your vampires don't drink blood with uh, fangs and in this kissy-kissy kind of stuff. It's a rusty bucket and a knife. And, it, and it's both funny and terrifying at the same time. It, it, it's, it, it's scary, and also you kind of want to laugh. And I wonder if you talk about that, that intimate combination of humor and horror. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's um, I think we can only be scared, terrified so much by an image before we need to release that, the pressure of that feeling. And laughter, absurdity is one of the best ways to do that. For me, the idea of the vampire and the fangs and the vampire who bites its victims always comes with a sort of seductive allure. I always like to think of this vampire in context in the context of the zombie, for instance. The zombie has no romantic allure, does not seduce you. The zombie just wants to eat you, every bit of you that can be eaten, doesn't want to know you, doesn't want to make love to you. The zombie has one thing on its mind. The vampire actually wants to know you, and we actually kind of want to know the vampire. We sort of want to ask the vampire in when the vampire knocks. So there's a psychological, sexual atmosphere around that kind of vampire. So for me, though, then the trick is, okay, I'm going to suggest that the vampire is not the bearer of all things erotic. The vampire is not um, coming to us uh, with this... uh, this allure of being on the other side of death, the vampire is going to come to us with the sadness and the um, the helplessness and the uh, awkwardness of death. And so the bucket and the knife is a way of saying, okay, if this creature really wanted to shed blood and drink it, it's not going to be the elegant version where uh, you look deep into someone's eyes and they turn their neck to you and you bite. No, it's going to be this clanking, kind of cl- clambering, cl- uh, uh, lurching effort to grab somebody, hold them down, and with a knife, that with, with a very kind of dull blade, one imagines, uh, take them out and take them down and drink blood that way. All of a sudden, um, I think... I, I mean, I think there is some humor in it, but I also feel that one pities the creature that would have to do it this way. There's a, there's a quality of, of, of compulsion to that. Like a vampire who's going to bite a beautiful woman or man on the neck, well, who wouldn't? You know, if you have the wherewithal, the fangs and, and the ability to do that, fine. But to have to carry that bucket around with you with that knife to sort of be, be tied to that kind of ritual to get your, your sustenance, it's just, uh, you know, who would want to be that person? And I think Torgu, my character, he doesn't want to be that person uh, and and wants to sort of pass this on. So I suppose the bucket is my statement about the inelegance, if we're really going to think about drinking blood. But that's also tied to... What is murder? You know, is murder the shot in the dark in an old film noir, or is murder mowing down a group of mothers um, who have seen their own children already killed and throwing them into a mass grave? You know, I mean, that's 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 part of that. That's the bucket. The bucket of blood can draw a thousand 
a thousand metaphors, a thousand images, a thousand meanings to it. And so can the vampire as well. One of the right. one of the powers of the vampire myth is that you can invest it in any way you sort of see fit. And one of the more interesting ways that you do is is electronically. I, I, I'm curious. Have you read uh, Koji Suzuki's uh, Ring trilogy? No, I haven't. I have uh, seen uh, the American adaptation at the movies. So um, there's there's quite an interesting uh, video kind of virus that that works its way through the newsroom there. I'm wondering, did you guys ever experience a computer virus at 60 Minutes that took down some of your computers? Uh, we did have viruses that got through. There were viruses that got through, but they were managed pretty quickly. You got the sense that there was a very large machine in CBS corporate that was going to wor- was working as our defensive shield. And so the idea that a virus would actually get through and crash the whole system it seemed like that they had that pretty well in control. But what intrigued me was that we brought all this tape in and all this material in in the form of an object, a separate individual object, and then we fed it into a system. And if for some reason, and so then all that separate stuff, all the images, all the sounds, all the people, all the voices, come in from the outside as separate things. And then they're put into the system and they become one thing. So if you could contaminate the one thing, you could contaminate everything. And that's the idea that I never saw it happen. But I always wondered, how could that happen? Well, the only way it would happen is if it happened from the inside, not from the outside. Somebody have to bring that virus in and actually inject it into our system from the inside. And, you know, nothing ever happened along the lines of, of the, the virus in my novel. But, but the technology was never stopped. So the idea was try to imagine the state of an office where the technology began to became so diseased that all of a sudden it became impossible to work. One thing that's really interesting about your your vision of the hour as a show in this book is that when we watch 60 Minutes, you know, I, I, I've watched it for some 30 years or something, and, and, and you, we see, you know, the guy, the reporters, and Morley and the crew, and, and we think, well, that's, you know, there's those five guys sitting in an office, turning around in the chair, and and. But what you see in this book is a huge machine. Tell us a little bit about that machine. So, it is a machine, and it is a machine that is staffed by a lot of people who you never imagine are there. And every correspondent has a team. There are between four and five producers, most of them in the office in New York, some of them in Washington, D.C., a few of them overseas. Uh, Those producers have a staff, an associate producer, uh, a staff of one usually, who works with them. And each of those teams is out very busily looking for stories. And once they find stories or ideas, they pitch them to a staff whose job is basically to figure out what can be on a 60 Minutes piece, what can be in 60 Minutes and what can't be. You then have a whole bunch of people who work in the service of the producers who are sort of the lowest on the totem pole, who go out and go to the archive and find tape. They, they nail down licensing agreements. They, uh, they go out in the rain and do stakeouts, everything under the sun. They're sort of the dog's bodies of the show. Then you have editors. 
And editors are kind of the hidden lifeblood of 60 Minutes. I mean, the thing about 60 Minutes is it's a highly edited format. You have 12 to 15-minute pieces that all have to be very sort of tightly controlled. There's a kind of uh, there is a formula there. And you start in one place and you end in another. And you have editors who know exactly how to do this. Many of them have been doing it for years. Some of them, a few of them for decades. And so the story starts out in one place with one person without a camera saying, could this work? Is this 60 minutes quality? Can it sustain 12 minutes on, on network television? And that brings in then the camera crews and the machinery that surrounds the correspondent. So before the correspondent even gets there, you have a team in advance. When the correspondent goes and appears, maybe goes for two days, three days, sometimes a week, does a series of interviews, and then goes on to the next story, the story they've just worked on, that individual piece, starts making its way through this machinery. And I think that most people who watch the show really don't understand that uh, that team that backs up the correspondence is uh, is what makes the show. You've got are working on a movie right now called Purple State of Mind, and, and this I think bears some uh, has some bearing on, on this novel in that there's as I we talked about earlier somewhat of a, a lack of faith in this novel, and this movie talks about your journey. Uh, you started out uh, at at some point in your life. You you were a devout Christian, right? And, and you became an atheist. And this this movie, Purple State of Mind, contrasts that with the journey of your friend uh, Craig Dretweiler, who was a lapsed believer, who became a strong believer, and ended up a professor at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. Tell us a little bit about this movie. How how did it come to be put together? Uh, well, it came together because I was, uh, while I was still at 60 Minutes, uh, after the 2004 presidential election, uh, I began to feel very strongly the vibrations of a deepening alienation in the country uh, around questions of faith. Uh, I, I have family members, uh, friends who are believers, and I began to sense that a lot of the people who I knew who were not believers, who didn't know anybody, who, who, who had had this faith— we're beginning to get very nervous about the the role of religion in American government, particularly through the Bush administration. And I thought, well, you know, I actually have this old friend who was my roommate who stayed in this world. And uh, we had never sort of talked about the deeper questions of faith. I had not really been back in that world since I left it years ago. And I sought him out. And I said, look, I just need to come back. I, he lives in Los Angeles. And I said, we've got to sit for two or three days, however long you can spare me. And I just want to talk about this stuff. I want to talk about why you stayed in. I want to talk about why you left, why I left. And I want to just kind of reacquaint myself with the faith of my youth. And he said, basically, he said, fine, but I want to bring some cameras. Uh, he had been taking his students to the Sundance Film Festival, and he'd seen documentaries on all kinds of subjects, including faith. And he thought we should talk about this on camera. And at that point, it was just, let's talk about it on camera and see where it goes. Maybe it'll be an interesting conversation that will have some relevance to other people. And we had about $5,000 at that point for, from some backers. And they said, okay, let's do the first conversation. And the first conversation was actually sort of a remarkable experience for both of us. And on camera, it seemed to grip people. And so we began to then shoot a series of conversations where we started out talking about our lives, how we got to be the people we were. And then we started talking about our differences, really arguing about why he still believed, why I didn't, arguing about hell. And this is where Spangland comes into the picture. I mean, for me, the central question 
of for believers is what do you do with the problem of evil? I mean, the theological term for this is theodicy. It's a very old one. Christians have wrestled with it since the beginning. All faiths do. But for me, and particularly at the end of the 20th century, I can't possibly believe in a sovereign being that would somehow preside over the madness of all that slaughter. And, and for me, faith becomes a way of saying, of sort of cordoning off the darkness of, 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 of the history of this race. And uh, Craig, um, Craig, my friend, he has continued in the faith, and I don't think he is a—he's uh, not—he's uh, a believer who thinks. He, he, he wrestles with his doubts. But uh, for him, God is sovereign, and God does, uh, however awful it may seem, he has some control over all this. And that's at the heart of our conversation in this movie. And— um, and sort of at the heart of all my all my endeavors, really. That's a central question and preoccupation for me. You're also working on a new book. It's a portrait of American Christianity, isn't it? Yes, that's right. I'm curious. Now, it's going to be your vision as an ex-Christian uh, of Christians. Right. Tell us a little bit about how that's going to inform your vision. Well— I'll tell you, the book began when I was still working for 60 Minutes. I interviewed a couple who were fans of the Left Behind books. These are books about the apocalypse from a Christian uh, perspective. And I asked them for about an hour questions about what they liked about the books. And then at the end of the time, one of them said to me, now may I ask you a question? I said, fine. And he said, will you be left behind? And my first response was, yes. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what? I should really try to answer that question. I should really seriously endeavor to answer it because you know what? That question gets asked every day, all the time, all over this country. Millions of Americans ask it in one way or another, and millions of Americans are put on the spot to answer it. So, And as an ex-Christian, as someone who's both asked that question back when I was a born-again, and now as someone who has been asked it, I thought, I'm not going to go and try to write a detached analysis of the community of believers in America. I'm going to go in as a wrestling human being with all my vulnerability and say, okay, make your argument. And I'm going to hear it, and I'm going to try to respond to you honestly. I'm not going to slam the door in your face. I'm not going to glibly tell you, yeah, I'm going to be left behind. Get out of my face. I'm not going to suddenly tell you, yes, no, I'm not going to be left behind. I want to believe like you. I'm going to wrestle with this stuff, because to me, it's an amazing American story. All these believers constantly out there trying to win the rest of us over, believing in a world that many of us don't think exists, or even for Christians who don't believe in a particular way, there's a kind of uh, conflict and tension. How do you handle uh, a group of people who, for whom the supernatural is so totally and clearly part of their lives? Well, one response is to say they're crazy. Another is to say they're just wrong, and it's okay that they're wrong because religion always, has always been with us. Another is to say they're evil. And another would be to say they're right, and to, I'm going to join. And finally to me, though, the most difficult proposition is to say, okay, I don't know what they are, but I'm going to try to figure out as best I can how to respond to them in a way that doesn't reduce or simplify the mystery of what they're trying to tell me. That's the book. This is it sounds very interesting. I'm wondering what you think your reception is going to be. I mean, you're you're uh, you said you described yourself as once you were born again, now you are not. That's going to 
color the way Christians and non-Christians perceive this book, isn't it? That is. It's true. It's inevitable. I once was at, uh, I went to Craig's College, Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, and I talked to a bunch of kids in chapel, and I told them that I had lost my faith. And at one point, one of the kids walked up to me and said, after it was over, and said, I don't understand. I'm confused. How do you lose your faith? I don't think, I've been taught that it's not possible that once you have the love of God, you can never lose it. He was truly, uh, he said it was like somebody hit him in the head with a sledgehammer, okay? Um, I realized that if I was going to go and do this, I, ha- I couldn't really think so much about audience. I know that some people who have figured out that I don't believe these things anymore are simply going to say, well, he doesn't believe, so we don't have to listen to this. And ultimately, if he's a non-believer writing about belief, he's influenced by darker forces. What's his agenda? And for people who don't believe, to listen to somebody who was once a believer, well, I may already be tainted from their perspective. I mean, how can someone who once believed, you've already got a little bit of the virus that you're writing about? For me... In America, to some extent, we all have a little bit of this virus. I really do believe that there's a bit of the evangelical in many, 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 many of us. It's sort of there. It's in our DNA. It's in our cultural DNA. I mean, you know, Elvis, Johnny Cash, Sam Cooke, all the way up into modern hip-hop. I mean, God is everywhere in our popular music. Um, God is just kind of, uh, it's weird, this developed country that unlike all other developed countries still has an enormous religious impulse. Um, all our new age religions, you know, all of our kind of impulse toward, towards the spiritual. And so if that's true, and I believe it is, then I think a story about someone who said, okay, well, I'm going to try to go and find the God in all this. I'm going to go and try to find out this creature, this character, this central figure, like in a novel. It's a quest novel. In a way, this book about this portrait of American Christianity is a quest novel in which I go out and try to find the grail. And, but I'm not going to do it as if I hadn't experienced revulsion, uh, anxiety, fear, distaste, aversion, whatever you want to call it, to these people. And I'm not going to do it as if I didn't once feel the delirious excitement of being a believer. I'm just going to go in with who I am and say, hit me with it, and I'm going to react to it. We've been speaking with John Marks. His new novel is Fangland. Thank you for joining me, John. Rick, thanks for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.